Dice Case 016, free play. I'm your host, Phil. Summer reading list, right? Or maybe you're listening to this and it's no longer summer. Either way, it's books for musicians to think about how we approach playing, how we approach practicing, and just how we approach music and music performance in general. And I have a few, just a scant few books that I stick by. The Effortless Mastery from the previous episodes, that's my number one book. And I've read and reread that book and continue to reread it and quote from it. But my second book, Stephen Nakmanovich's Free Play, Improvisation in Life and Art. That's a, it's a lot of book. It was published in 1990, and it found its way to jazz musicians. And I came upon it about the same time that I got turned on to Kenny Warner's book. And it was, it's in the Jamie Abersall catalog, you know, where you buy all your jazz books and jazz uh, play-alongs and jazz baseline books. But it's not written by a jazz musician. Stephen's a violinist, and I'll quote, who loves to give totally improvised solo concerts on violin and viola. And uh, Kenny Werner mentions this book, Free Play and His Effortless Mastery, and there's more than a few parallel ideas in both texts. And using the scholarly language that we used in, in PhD school, these, book, these books are speaking to each other. And as I did with Kenny's book, I'll quote some of my favorite passages. And the first one on page 9, Quote from Stephen, many musicians are fabulously skilled at playing the black dots on the printed page, but mystified by how the dots got there in the first place and apprehensive of playing without the dots, i.e. improving. Um, this speaks to me on two different levels. The first one being composition, you know, how the dots got there in the first place. A lot of musicians don't deal with that. I went to to a session at the Jazz Educators Conference a few years ago, and the department chair of composition at Berkeley was given a session on co composing, and the room was packed with musicians, and he asked us, he goes, raise your if you improvise, and, you know, the place is packed, and everybody probably raised their hand in that room. And then he asked, he goes, how many of you write music? And I looked, and it was like a handful of us, probably less than 5% of the room raised our hands. And he made a strong point, and it stuck with me. He said, the same skills that you use to improvise lines, you know, make up bass lines and solos, are the same skills that you use for writing and composing music. You know, for example, you know the notes probably that go into making an F blues happen in a bass line. You know, if you don't, check out the previous episodes that I did that. But those are the same notes that you could use to write a melody over the same changes. You know, and many, many players can walk an F blues bass line, but would be stumped on writing ahead over F blues. They'd be mystified by the composition process. You know, players will perform music written and otherwise, but back away when someone says, hey, could you write this you know could you compose a piece of music could you write a line you know but we, we have to write we have to compose music I mean that's that is something that I backed away from as a musician I just wanted to be a bass player at some point then I wanted to be a bass player that arranged other people's music and then I wanted to be a bass player that you know, arranged other people's music and then taught music and but it's good for us to write and compose you know and we have to write for other reasons too you know I had to write music beginning as an undergrad. I, when I was a junior, I took a non-music class. It was two semesters of it. It was called the humanities. And 
where we studied art and culture of all kinds. And they had various professors teach these sections. And it was at the, at the small liberal arts college that I went to, it was mandatory that everybody take these two semesters. And they were taught by various people. You know, They were taught by people in the English field, and they were taught by historians, and they were taught by even musicians too. And we studied art and culture through the ages. And the professor, an English professor, took me aside and said, you know, knowing was, I was a music major, asked if I could write and perform a 12-tone row composition, you know, Arnold Schoenberg stuff. If you don't know what it is, look it up. And fortunately, my theory professor in my sophomore year had had us write some of the same stuff, but as exercises. So it was well within my capabilities to create this melody and perform it in the humanity classes on piano. You know, but that was what I really think about is not only that did I have to write a piece of music, I was going to have to perform it. And that's where it started sticking to me. I might have to start writing more music at some point. And then in my present job, when I first got here, the theater director was doing Rhinoceros by Ionesco. You know, it's an absurdist play. And he wanted to have music in the production, you know, and he, a solo bass player, you know, me, right? performing lines that I had written that matched the action on the stage. And I read the play, and I wrote some lines that would work with different scenes, and then I met with the director, and then I wrote more lines. And I'm writing things, and he's kind of guiding me sometimes, and sometimes he's not. And my stuff, you know, my lines, my melodies, it worked, you know, and it was a hit. It added a dynamic to the performance on stage that wasn't usually there. And I was asked to do that same thing multiple times over different productions. You know, one more example, in Combo last year, and this is not the first time I've had to do this, but we needed a B-flat minor blues. And I thought I couldn't really find one that I liked that was going to work for the band, so I wrote the head for one, you know. So there it is. You know, it was simple for me, but I still had to go around and edit and re-edit it and make sure it worked with my band. And one of the things that I've noticed that is it's exciting to hear your music being played. If you write something, those that's you. You know, it's one thing when we played the head, the satin doll, and that's great, and that feels good. But when you're writing your music and you hear a trumpet and alto player play your melody, it's a very exciting feeling. So that's one half of one quote of page nine from Nachmanovich. But the reality is composition and improvisation are two sides of the same coin. We use the same skills, you know. If you know the chord changes, you know what notes work with that for your improv and for writing a composition. And when Stephen gets to the first chapter, he really brings improvisation into a conception most people can understand. Uh, let, now, let me go further on what S Stephen has to say in his book. And he says that improvisation goes beyond art forms, that we are all improvisers. The most common type of improvisation we partake in is what he calls ordinary speech. And I'm going to quote him here on page 17. We are all improvisers. As we talk and listen, we are drawing on a set of building blocks, vocabulary, and rules for combining them, those building blocks, which is grammar. And these building blocks have been given to us by our culture. But the sentences that we make with them may never have been said before and may never be said or heard again. The activity of instantaneous creation is as ordinary to us as breathing. Now think about that. It's ordinary to be improvisers. And yet, 
a lot of people back off from it. You know, they're confused. They only they only want to play the dots on the page. I know a lot of musicians like that. You know, and the idea of music as a language. I mean, how many times have I heard that in the decades I've been studying and teaching music that music is a language, just like learning French or something. But it's and it's the same to me as talking to myself or having a conversation. I'm coming up with things that fit the context. I'm coming up with building blocks, vocabulary that fit the grammar, right, chord changes. And I'm doing the same thing when I'm lecturing to combo or theory classes. I'm taking ideas, but I'm not reading from a script. I might have some ideas, but I'm still improvising in that way for, in, in, in that form too. Here's some more out of Stephen's book. And it's on the same page and going into page 18. Stephen talks about the two types of time involved in the creative process. And the first is that moment of inspiration in which I quote, a direct intuition of beauty or truth comes to the artist. You know the idea. It's when something comes to you, an idea for a bass line or an idea for a melody. And then the second is, the second kind of time is the struggle to hold on to it long enough to get it down on paper or canvas or film or stone. And I know that one well. I've dreamed of melodies and woken up singing them as I walk towards the studio to play them on my piano and then to write them on my sketchbook. That's composition of melodies, but it's been bass lines too that come to me. It's ideas for solos. I'll get an idea, musical idea, and I will run for the piano or run for the bass because I've got to get it down on paper because it will disappear. And then he writes about a third type of time, and that's the real time, in the moment time, and that's where improvisation comes in. This relates to us as improvising bass players, you know, as lines or solos. You know, you hear something, and at that moment in the rehearsal, you have to react to it. Maybe you're hearing whatever it is that you're going to react to only for the first time, but you have to find something in your head or under your fingers to fit what the guitarist or the pianist or the drummer is playing. I remember when I was in improv class in grad school, and the professor directed me to play a D9 bass line, you know, Phil, like in the style of Marcus Miller. I didn't know what he was talking about. I knew a D9 had a flat seven in it, and it's a dominant chord. So, but the drummer started playing, and I came up with a line that utilized that ninth of the scale, and I had to come up with something. I don't know if what I played is what he wanted, but he didn't say anything about it, and it was a line that fit, and we do that. That's that third time that we're talking about where we have to come up with something in real time. And that's good for us, too. However, nerve-wracking it. More of Stephen's ideas. You know, what stuck with me when I first read this book is what he gets to in my much-underlined page 19. And I quote, The work of the improviser is to stretch out those flashes of inspiration, you know, like my dreams of melodies and bass lines, and extend them until they merge into the activity of daily life. And he goes on, we then begin to experience creativity and the free play of improvisation as one with our ordinary mind and our ordinary activity. Moment to moment, nonstop flow. Moment to moment, nonstop flow as a musician. That you can create lines at any given moment because it's what you do. We're musicians. You hear something or somebody plays something or you feel like something needs to be played. You don't have to switch into a different mindset and say, oh, okay, now I've got to start creating stuff. I better come up with something. It comes natural to you. That's the mindset that we want to get into. You know? And he mentions leading an active life in the world without being entangled in scripts 
or rigid expectations, doing without being too attached to the outcome because doing is the outcome. This kind of parallels and dovetails with what Kenny was saying, you know, that we don't, we, to be kind to ourselves, to, to create music and not be caught up is, is this good, you know, is this, am I doing this right? You know, just that we're creating music. And there's a lot of trust involved in this sort of approach to playing music. You know, most of the trust lays into ourselves as musicians and trusting that we have the tools to find these lines within us. Now, that's what Kenny would say, too. And it's not just for jazz musicians. It can be for musicians of all genres. Uh, the number of times I've played in church for praise and worship bands and been handled, handed the piano sheet, you know, which had chords and melody, not a bass part, that's pretty rare. And I had to come up with the lines. You know, I had to see where I was going to, not just lines, but, you know, where I was going to enter at, you know, where were going to be the places where I didn't play and just let the music breathe without me, you know. That takes a lot of restraint sometimes, you know. Our, our natural reflexive tendency as musicians is that, you know, someone counts off the tune, boom, we come in with it. But this is where I would look at it and say, no, I'm going to wait to see what happens. Sometimes because I just didn't know what to do, so I wanted to wait till the second verse. You know, and it's, it's the same concept of me giving a music theory or music history lecture. You know, I, I know what I've had my students read and listen to, and I have a strong idea of the topic, but I don't want to follow a script. You know, I remember one time a student came up to me after a jazz appreciation lecture, and she said, oh, she said there was a lot of things that I wanted to, I didn't get to write about everything. She says, would it be possible to sh see your notes? And I said, sure. And I had a post-it note that had about five lines on it written. I said, here you go. And she says, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, I've been teaching this for a while. And I said, I have ideas. And I said, I don't want to be caught up in what I, only what I can do. You know, I think about that when I see people teaching with a PowerPoint. They're stuck because they got to go to the next slide. You know, I want to, you know, say something and then my students have a question and I want to rip from there, you know. And it's the same thing with music performance, you know. Uh, I plan what I'm going to say. I plan what I'm going to play. But as Stephen writes, throw away your plans and relate in real time to the people in the room, you know, whether it's those students in the music history class asking me a question, you know, and I go, wait a second, I want to talk about this or let me show you this. And it's the same with music performance. You know, the group you're playing with doesn't have a baseline written out. That freely gives you the space to find the line that both serves the music and represents you as an artist. And that's, and that's serious business. And we've got to relate in real time to the people in the room. In this case, instead of the classroom, it's the rehearsal room or maybe even live on stage. Recently, I played with a small group, and I knew they liked to call Herbie Hancock's Dolphin Dance. So I spent a lot of time, you know, that's not a tune that I play a whole lot of. So I was listening to the backing track, and I was listening to the recording. I was playing along, and I was coming up with walking lines and two field lines and solo lines. But when I got to the gig, did I use all those lines when they called the tune? No, it just gave me the ideas of what I was going to do. And I used some different lines. I came up with some different things that didn't come up because the drummer's feeding me things. I'm hearing things that the guitarist was playing. I'm going to end this episode with one more quote. It's on page 21. As an improvising musician, I'm not in the music business. I'm not in the creativity business. I'm in the surrender business. Now think about that. I'm in the surrender business. It's still going back to that be kind to yourself. 
surrendering what we think the line should be and moreover finding the lines that are within us. And the more that we can surrender, you know, Michael Moore wrote this in his book on baselines. He says he, he, he used the term die to himself, that we had to react and not be encumbered by the ideas of do I, you know, Kenny Warner says it in one of the passages of his book. He talks about a musician with too many, too much mental baggage and the guy steps up to take a solo and the first line he plays and immediately castigates himself and said, no, not hip enough, you know, you know, but we've got to, you know, that's what the great players did. Miles Davis and Coltrane amongst thousands of others, including Bach and Beethoven surrendered to themselves and found the lines within them. In the next episode, I'm going to detail a couple of other ideas from Stephen's book, Free Play. I'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm.